Have you ever experienced just a slight pain? It's a little twinge in your stomach before. In 2009, John Rayner was in his home, in his kitchen, making himself a sandwich for lunch. And all of a sudden, he just he just a slight twinge, just off to the side. Nothing, nothing to write home about, just a, a small discomfort, something I'm sure all of us have experienced before. Now, John, he was very familiar with stomach pain. You see, John has Crohn's disease. That's an autoimmune condition that affects his gastrointestinal system. However, that had been remission for over a year. John felt great. He was eating good. So when he, when he felt that slight clinch, he didn't think anything of it. And he went back to just going about his business and, and making a sandwich. However, about one minute later, that slight twinge became a ferocious pain. It felt as if his insides had exploded. And that's because, well, they had. Literally. So John was rushed to the emergency room and he was rushed into surgery. And thankfully, John survived. But when his doctors met up with him in recovery, they said, John, we hate to tell you this, but there's been a complication. They said, in order for your stomach to fully heal, they told him that they're going to have to shut down his stomach by numbing it and then feed him intravenously. They, they essentially, they had to put his stomach into an induced coma, which meant no eating. Instead, the doctors, they, they put John um, on a food pump. This is a a cannibal contraption that is attached to a large bag of nutrients. It's, it's, it's basically like an outside stomach. So, so they send John home with this food pump. Keep in mind, he can't eat anything. Because if he does, he will die. Because there's still that hole there that they couldn't repair by surgery. So every day around mealtime, John would go into uh, the living room flip on the food pump and get his nutrients. All the while, his wife and two kids would be sitting in the kitchen eating real, delicious, savory food. And this went on for a couple of weeks. Then one day, something very strange happened. John got hungry. Which doesn't make a lot of sense because hunger signals typically travel up from the stomach to the brain. But remember, John's stomach, it's numb. However, he started to feel hungry, really hungry, and this drove him crazy. So you know what he did? He then went online and he looked at all the menus of his favorite restaurants. <laughs> he also searched the recipes of his favorite food. But remember, he cannot eat food. Because if he does, he could die. Well, then one night, their, their neighbor, Marsha, is very thoughtful. She decided to bring over to John's wife and his two kids a dessert. A chocolate bun cake. And when she walked in the apartment, she, not intentionally, but she walked, she walked right past John and set it down into the kitchen. And at this point, 
John could not take it anymore. So you know what he did? He went around, he looked around, and he went into the kitchen, and he lowered his face over the chocolate bucket, and he smell it. And as he did so, he could smell the ingredients, he could smell the chocolate, he could smell the flour, he could smell the rum. But that wasn't enough. In a desperate attempt to once again get some sensation of connecting with what you know John did with no one around, he then took his hands and plunged it into the chocolate. Can you can you imagine? And for a brief moment, listen, for a brief moment, John said this. He said, in that moment when he plunged his hands into the chocolate cake, he said, I felt human again. For although food wasn't in him, at least it was on him, and that gave him a sense of being alive. Now, before you laugh or, or pass judgment on John, I want you to consider something for a moment. Think about what it would be like to go months without ever eating any kind of food. And not just skipping a meal here or there, those of you that do intermittent fasting, not going 16 hours without any food. But imagine what it would be like to go months without food touching your lips and going into your stomach. Imagine. In his book, John, John Hackson wrote a book uh, the title of the book is called The Man Who Couldn't Eat. And in his book, John states this. He says, eating, chewing, and digesting. He says, these are things we do simply to stay alive. Now, John says this in his book. He says, these are things we do, please hear me, to be human. Friend, this Sunday morning, the first Sunday of 2024, the first Sunday here in our new worship location, we are going to look at a claim of Jesus that is incredibly bold. In John chapter 6, we're going to find Jesus in front of, in front of a large group of people. And you know what? This group of people, they're hungry, very hungry. So in a miraculous act of kindness, Jesus, you know what he's going to do? He's going to feed them. You've probably heard this story before. Jesus is going to take two fish and five barley loaves from a little boy, and he's going to multiply that to feed a crowd of over 5,000 people. But please hear me. However, Jesus is going to feed these 5,000 people, not simply to fill their stomachs, but to teach them and to teach us today a very important truth about himself. A truth, I pray, that will help chart the course for this new season in our church's life. Because you see, friend, in John chapter 6, you know what Jesus does? Jesus tells us why he came to earth. 
And what Jesus makes abundantly clear is that he has been sent by God the Father, friend, to be the true bread of life. In fact, this is the main point of the text we're going to look at this morning, John chapter 6. The, the main point that we see in this chapter is that Jesus is the true bread of life. And I want you to notice how often Jesus repeats this point. I'm going to throw it on the screen. In verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And then he says this, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now consider for a moment the implications of what Jesus is saying, especially in light of the story I just shared with you. Friend, Jesus is saying that just as you need bread to truly live, and as John's story so powerfully illustrates, you need to eat bread to be human, so too, friend, your soul, the deepest part of your being, it needs Jesus to live and to thrive. Listen to me. You need Jesus to be human. Moreover, you need Jesus for eternal life. This is the bold, authoritative claim of Jesus of Nazareth. And what we're going to see this morning is that as the true bread of life, you know what Jesus does? As the true bread of life, Jesus invites you and he invites me to eat. Friend, Jesus Christ wants you to understand the desperate condition of your soul and see him for who he truly is, and that is the all-satisfying Lord and Savior, the true bread of life. Because here's the deal. All of us, if you can hear my voice, all of us are looking to something to satisfy us. We're all looking for something to be our bread in life, and that could be a romantic relationship, that could be a certain body type, that could be a spouse, that could be a certain type of a lifestyle or success in some kind of job. All of us are looking for bread. All of us are looking for something to sink our teeth in so we can be satisfied. Yet as we're about to see in this text, and as life so often shows us, all these things we run to, to, to look to to satisfy us, they ultimately fail, and you know why? Because they perish. But friend, that's not the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus promises that whoever comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever believes in him shall never thirst. So he invites you, he invites me this morning to eat. So how can you receive this true bread of life? Well, Jesus tells us, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 6, either on your phone or if you received a Bible that we were hanging out there in the lobby, that's page 891 in that Bible. 
follow along as I read John chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 1. And I want you just to consider the significance of what Jesus is saying. More than that, I would invite you to consider to receiving Jesus as the bread of life. Read this, chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Earlier in John's Gospel, that Jesus was healing those with infirmities. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. Now, this is important. Uh, the Passover was the feast that the Jews celebrated to commemorate yearly God delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. You can read about this in the book of Exodus. God's people, Israel, they were oppressed by Pharaoh. So God, through his servant Moses, led God's people out of bondage in Egypt to the promised land. Well, on their way to the promised land, they went through the wilderness. And what's important for us to note is that while Israel was in the wilderness, God provided food for them. He provided bread from heaven. Remember what it's called? Manna. He provided food, manna from heaven. This is going to play an important role in the story here in a moment. Now look at me, verse 5. Jesus Read, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, 200 denarii, that would have been over half a year's wages. So think about it. Over half your annual income would not have been enough to feed all these people just a little bit. So verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. <clears throat> there, there was what? There was much grass in the place. What a curious thing to say. There was much grass in this. Now, I don't know about your yard at this time of year, but my yard isn't looking that great. Well, we could say there is not much grass in my place, right? <laughs> Why in the world would the author say and include this detail that there's much grass in this place? Uh, Fred, we are about to read a miracle of Jesus. He's going to take this small amount of food, and he's going to multiply it to feed 5,000 people. And it's not uncommon for many people today to doubt that this happened. 
And the line of reasoning goes like this. It's that this account we're reading, this story we're reading about Jesus in the New Testament, this is ancient fiction. That this didn't really happen. Well, the, the problem with that is that this text, John 6, it does not read like ancient fiction. Scholars will tell you that ancient fiction is terse and doesn't add any miscellaneous details. I mean, when you read ancient fiction from the time that the New Testament was written, there aren't any extra details such as there was much grass in the place. <coughs> the only things that are included in ancient fiction are those things that drive the plot. John 6 doesn't read like ancient fiction. And this is telling us that this account we're about to read should not be viewed as ancient fiction, but rather as a true historical eyewitness account. John, the Gospel writer, he's recording this for our benefit. So let's see what happens. Verse 10. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given things, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So Jesus abundantly supplies for them all the food they want. Verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now this is what I want to draw your attention to. Notice the response of the crowd here in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, which was multiplying, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come to the world. Now notice Jesus, what he does here in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Wait, what? Here, here we have Jesus feeds this crowd to their bellies are full. They're excited and they say, we want to make you king. And what does Jesus do? He hides. Now, now why is it? I mean, especially when reading John's gospel, hasn't Jesus been teaching that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords? And now here there's a group of 5,000 people and they want to make Jesus king. Does he let them? No, he withdraws and goes away to the mountains. Why would Jesus do that? Well, look at me down at verse 25. This is the following day. Jesus has crossed over to the other side of the sea. This, this is the same crowd that he just fed. And notice what we see there in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now tell me, what is this? It's a cup. 
what, what type of cup? It's a or, or disposable cup, right? One of these little paper disposable cups. We have them in the bathrooms in our, in our house, right? The kids fill up with water, take a drink, and then what do you do with it? Throw it away, right? It, hence the name disposable cup, right? These are useful, but we don't find them as precious or valuable. Let me show you another cup. The greatest cup. And that is the Stanley Cup. <laughs> <laughs> take a moment to take it in. <laughs> Do you know how this cup is transported? In a case, and the handlers wear white gloves. Here's a better picture. <laughs> and John and Dave's questions. Now, please hear me. NHL teams that win the Stanley Cup, they allow each player a day with the Stanley Cup, their own day. Now, do the players drink out of it? You bet they do. But you know what? They don't. They that don't discard it like they would. A disposable cup. And you know why that is? It's because they ascribe the Stanley Cup great worth, great value. You see, NHL players just don't find the Stanley Cup as useful. They find it as precious, as valuable, as something of great and significant worth. Friend, you'll notice that the people wanted to make Jesus their king after he performed the miracle of feeding, right? However, what did Jesus do? He withdrew. He withdrew to the mountains. And why did Jesus do that? He tells us specifically there in verse 26, Have your eyes Father, once more. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, meaning signs that point to the fact that he is the Son of God, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, in the crowd's eyes, Jesus was like this. A disposable cup. He was useful. He could give them what they wanted. He could fill their stomach. He could satisfy their needs. But he was not precious. He was not something to ascribe worth to. They sought out Jesus simply for what he could give them. And in fact, if you keep reading, this is why they asked me to perform another miracle in verse 30. And friend, here we learn the first important aspect of what it means to receive Jesus as the true bread of life, and that is this. Friend, to receive Jesus as the bread of life, you first must find Jesus as precious, not merely useful. Friend, Jesus makes it clear, especially in his interaction with the crowd, Jesus makes it clear that he did not come into the world mainly to give bread, but to be bread. Pastor Mother John Piper said it best, speaking of this passage, he writes, Jesus did not come to be an ever-ready bellhop for our bellies. 
but to be the all-satisfying bread for our souls. This was the point of the miracle, and the crowds missed it. And the question I have for us this morning that we need to ask is, have we missed it too? Friend, how do you view Jesus? Do you find him like this disposable cup? Merely useful? That is, you know, Jesus can get you to things that really work in life. Like a spouse, a kid, a job, a certain lifestyle. Do you view Jesus as a means to an end? He's useful, but not precious. Or do you see him the way an NHL player used the Stanley Cup? Of something of great worth. I can put it this way, friend. Do you follow Jesus so that he can give you the things you really want? Or do you follow Jesus because he is what you really want? The all-satisfying Lord and Savior. Now, if you're here this morning, and you're thinking to yourself, man, I, I, I do not see Jesus as something to ascribe great worth to. I don't see him as something as precious, but I, I must confess I see him as something that's just useful. Jesus is like a vending machine for Go to him and I want so I can get what I want. If you're having a hard time finding Jesus' precious, I'll tell you why. It's the same reason why I often fail to find him as precious. And you know why that is? It's because I have a deficient view of my sin. Look, nobody thinks they're perfect. I've yet to meet someone that says they're without sin. Everyone admits they're a sin. I know I am. My guess is you know you're a sinner too. I'm not giving you any new information here, right? Listen, our problem isn't that we think we are without sin. No, our problem is we don't think our sin, please hear me, deserves judgment. But it does. Friend, just a cursory reading of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, please hear me. Jesus himself repeatedly taught that unrepentant sinners will suffer the judgment of God for all eternity in hell. This is what our sin earns us. And you know what? For many people, that sounds Ridiculous. And maybe that's his one. This notion that I would have to suffer for all eternity in hell for my sin, how outrageous. How stupid. How, how asinine. Friend, if that's you this morning, I want you to consider something. That's this. <coughs> what you have to understand is that the atrocity of sin is not measured by the sin itself, but by the value of the one being sinned against. Let me give you an example. I have, I have 
four beautiful children. I have a daughter and three sons. <clears throat> and if you were to discover one of my sons or any little boy for that matter, <coughs> if you were to discover a little boy pulling the legs off of a grasshopper, you'd probably think it's strange and a little bizarre, right? A little boy, ten and nine, pulling the legs off a grasshopper, but hey, you did the whole magnifying thing with the ants when you were a kid, right? So, probably not that big a deal. But if the same little boy were pulling the legs off of a frog, that'd be a little bit more disturbing. If it were a bird, you'd probably scold him and inform his parents. But if it were a puppy, if you saw a boy ripping the limbs off of a dog, little puppy. That would be too shocking for you to tell it. You would intervene. And if you were saw the little boy ripping the limbs off of a baby, I'm quite confident that would be so reprehensible. All of you would risk your own life to save that baby. Stay with me here. Tell me, what's the difference in each of those scenarios? The sin is the same. Pulling the limbs off. The only difference is the one who has sinned against it goes from a grasshopper to a baby. You see, the more noble and valuable the creature, the more heinous and reprehensible the sin. And friends, so it is with God. If God were a grasshopper, and to sin against him wouldn't be that big of a deal. And eternal punishment would not be necessary, but friend, God is not a grasshopper. He's the most glorious and precious valuable being in the whole world. <coughs> Speak, Lord, for your servants listening. <laughs> His glory and worth are infinite and eternal. Thus, to sin against an infinitely glorious being is an infinitely heinous offense that is worthy of an infinitely heinous punishment, and that's hell. So you see, <clears throat> the atrocity of sin is not measured by the sin itself, but by the value of the one being sinned against. And here's the deal. Listen to me. By our own admission, we've sinned against this God. And that's bad news because our sin earns us this eternal punishment. Yet, friend, the good news of the Bible, and this is what we're all about here at Faith Community Church, and this is why we chose this text to be our first message in this new building, because the good news of Scripture is that God has made provision for our sin in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true bread of life. Amen? A few chapters later, as you keep reading, Jesus Christ goes to a cross. And you know why he goes to the cross? So that he could absorb the punishment you are owed and I are owed for our sins against a great and holy God. Jesus died to save all who would trust him and receive him as the true bread of life. Why? So that we would no longer be the recipients of his wrath, but then we could become his beloved children. Amen? And friend, when you understand that, Jesus will be precious to you. 
You will come to find him as satisfying. You won't go to him simply because you need something. You'll go to him because you want more of him. So first receive the bread of life. Find Jesus as precious, not merely useful. But then second, you must be drawn to Jesus by God the Father. Look at the, the next several verses here, verses 35 to 44. So, so they said to him, verse 35, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now keep in mind, this is the same group that he just performed the miracle of feeding them 5,000 to 5,000 people, and they say, what miracle will you do? Verse 33, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And notice the response. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And listen to what Jesus says, verse 35. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes me shall never thirst. Friend, if you are looking for this, your satisfaction in the things of this world, you're going to be thirsty and hungry always. But Christ offers you eternal satisfaction in Him. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have not seen me. You have seen me, yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me I will, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. What's the will? What is that will that you're doing, Jesus? Verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What good news! What an incredible invitation! Yet notice the response in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about it. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, I met my wife, Stephanie, while we were going to school, going to college in Chicago. And I got to Chicago was a great city to spend four years there, especially during college. And something romantic that you could do with your sweethearts in downtown Chicago was take a tour of the city in a horse-drawn carriage. You know what I'm talking about? It almost, it almost looks like something out of Cinderella, right? Now, let me ask you, uh, we're from Kentucky, we're all of us here, we're familiar with horses, I hope. And this is an easy question. But tell me, who moves the carriage? The horse. Hence the name, horse-drawn what? Carriage. That, right, that carriage isn't going anywhere without the strength and the work of the horse. In a similar way, that's what Jesus is saying about us and God. 
Note carefully how Jesus says that no one will come to him, indeed no one is able to come to him, unless God the Father draws that person to Jesus. The word translated draw there in verse 44, you know what it means? It literally means, quote, to compel by irresistible authority. For example, the same word is used in Acts 16, 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. The word that is used there for drag is the same word used for draw here in chapter 6, verse 44. We also find that the same word used in classical Greek at the same time that the New Testament was written. And it's used to describe drawing water from a well. Think about that. When we, when we draw water from a well, do we say, okay, water, come on up here. Come on. Is, it, is that how we bring water up from the well? No. We use a bucket and force it up against gravity to come up to us. Faith, so it is with us in God. In our sinful condition, Jesus is saying we are so depraved that God must drag us to himself. And here's the glorious good news for those who God the Father has brought to Jesus. Notice what he says here. Jesus will receive those who come to him. He will keep them. He will preserve them. And he will raise them up on the last day. What Jesus will not do is fail to recognize those individuals as his own. You know, my, uh, my dad is a very generous man. And when I was a little guy, he would often travel for work. And when he as Many good dads do. When he was gone traveling, when he came back, he'd, he'd give us gifts. Well, if you can imagine this, occasionally, as a child, I would lose the gifts that my dad would give me. Have you ever lost a gift that someone has given you before and you're willing to admit it? Right? A few of us, right? Well, what can be our tendency to lose things? Please hear me. That's not the way it is with God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. John 6.39 says that Jesus will lose nothing of all that God the Father has given. This is good news. Amen? So this morning, if you're here and you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, take heart. God will not let you go. He will hold you fast. He who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you know what Jesus is saying to you? He's saying this. You cannot save yourself. You are incapable of saving yourself. God must do it because, and I don't want to hurt your feelings, you're that sinful. And how do you know if God is drawing you to himself? Very simply, you begin to recognize your own sin. Friend, is that true of you? Are you, right now as I'm preaching, are you perhaps maybe for the first time becoming aware of your sinful condition before God? If so, I have some good news for you because notice what Jesus says next. And here's the third thing you must do to receive the bread of life, and that is believe in Him. 
Look at these several verses, 26 through 29. Chapter 6, 26 through 29. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Remember, they saw Jesus like this. Useful, but not something to ascribe worth to. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered him, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. I, I'm a child of the 80s. And do you guys remember those AW fast food restaurants? I think they still have them. Well, back in the 80s, they tried something in order to compete with McDonald's quarter pounder of hamburger. And you know what they did? This is what they did. They came up with a third pound burger that costs less than McDonald's quarter pound burger. So, a bigger hamburger at a lower cost. But you know what? It failed. And you know why it failed? True story. Because most consumers thought a quarter pound burger, a quarter pound burger, was larger than a third pound burger. <laughs> In other words, consumers were unable to correctly assess the value of the food. Fred, notice, Jesus doesn't want us to make that mistake. He doesn't want us to make that same mistake. Look at what he says there in verse 27. There, there is one food that perishes, and there's another that doesn't. Jesus told us, don't work for the food that perishes. Meaning, don't work to be satisfied in a romantic relationship. Don't work to be satisfied in the things of this world. Don't make it your aim to climb up the ladder. Don't make it your aim to have the kind of kids in the house, in the yard. Don't work for food that perishes. He says, work for the food that will not perish. Okay, Jesus, what is that work? What is the work that God requires? Look at verse 26. The work is believing. That is, the work is no work. It's trusting completely that Jesus' death and resurrection is sufficient to save you. Friend, please, please hear me. If you get nothing away from this morning, I hope you to come away and remember this. Salvation does not come to the person who rests in their own righteousness. You know why? Because you don't have it. And neither do I. No, salvation comes to the person, and this is why this is the best news in the solar system. Salvation comes to the person who admits they're a sinner and they can't save themselves. And they go all in on the person working Jesus Christ. And like, I'm a sinner, I deserve judgment, but I'm trusting that Jesus took that punishment for me on the cross and rose from the dead, proving himself to be the Son of God. Salvation comes to the person who believes that. Friend, to receive Jesus as a true bread of life, you must see him as precious, not merely useful. You must be drawn to him, and finally you must pray. Have you done that? 
After several months of treatments, uh, the doctors discovered that John, uh, he needed to go back to Eden. And it was the first thing, think about it, months without food touching your lips, Notice the first thing he ate after months of not eating, it's not a chocolate cake. <laughs> it's a French fry. <laughs> Good choice, wouldn't you say? But when he took a bite of that French fry, instead of tasting salt and all that fatty goodness, he tasted nothing. Shocked, and as you can imagine, utterly disappointed, he then took a butter knife use as a mirror to see his tongue. And when he looked, he saw that his tongue was as smooth as the butter knife. You know why? Because his taste buds, they hadn't been used for so long, they evaporated. You think he was disappointed? <laughs> you think he was that? But you know what? John kept eating. Even though he couldn't taste anything. Then one day, he walks into a diner in, in New York and Orders of a strong sandwich. And he takes a bite of the sandwich, and for the first time, he could taste something. It was faint, but he could taste something. Elated, he looks over the guy next to him and he's like, This is the best sandwich I have ever had. And then, in typical New York fashion, the guy turns to him and says, Well, you should try their meatloaf. <laughs> Friend, John went in months without real bread. Some of you have gone your whole life without tasting and seeing and enjoying the true bread of life, Jesus Christ. And friend, that's true of you. Jesus invites you to taste and see what the Lord is good. Faith, our location might have changed, but our message remains the same. May we as a church continue to esteem Jesus as the all-sufficient true bread of life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.